in the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number six, the recount of the 2000 general election, when everything boiled down to one contentious retallying cycle in Florida. November 22, 2000 was two weeks past election day. But at the Miami-Dade County Election Office, officials were still hand-counting ballots. With Al Gore's requested recount, they would need to sift through thousands of uncounted votes in just a few days. Suddenly, there was a commotion from the front of the building. Demonstrators had stormed the election office. They demanded the recount stop. As they pounded on the office's inner doors and walls, they screamed that George W. Bush was the rightful winner. In the chaos, some election personnel nearly got trampled. The fight over Florida's election results would become a fierce battle of wills. Al Gore versus George W. Bush. Gore pushing for the recount and Bush against. Meanwhile, a stunned America watched TV coverage of the turmoil in Florida with no idea which candidate would be their next president. And they'd keep waiting until 36 days after the election, when the clash over the presidency boiled over into the federal courts. Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar. Today, we'll dive into the Florida recount for the presidential election of 2000 which spiraled into a war over voting results. After an endless saga of court battles, the Supreme Court would finally step in to settle the matter of uncounted ballots in Florida once and for all. Coming up, we'll see where the gloves came off. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. As election season wound down in 2000, 
America was left with two choices, Democrat Al Gore or Republican George W. Bush. The former was a seasoned politician who is currently serving as Bill Clinton's vice president. Before, Gore had been a senator to Tennessee. Bush, on the other hand, was the son of former President George H.W. Bush. In 2000, the younger Bush was the governor of Texas. His folksy, former oil man charm was day and night to Gore's Harvard degree. Gore had easily secured the Democratic nomination due to the popularity of Clinton's presidency. Still, Clinton's name had some stink on it with his sex scandal and impeachment trial. Gore tried to distance himself from Clinton while still riding the coattails of the economic success that came from his presidency. Bush, meanwhile, narrowly won the Republican nomination after a heated primary battle with Senator John McCain. In South Carolina, Bush's team ran a vicious smear campaign against McCain that went so far as to accuse the senator's wife of being a drug addict. Oh, and imply that their adopted child was the result of an illicit affair. Yikes. Throughout the campaign, both candidates focused their platforms on similar domestic issues, from tax cuts to health care and social security. Their policies weren't that dissimilar, as they both touted themselves as bipartisan and moderate. Under the veneer of common goals, though, Gore and Bush were hardly allies. Each campaign went on the offensive to cut the other down. Gore's campaign highlighted that Bush planned to give tax cuts to the wealthy. That certainly looked like the Texas governor was in the pocket of wealthy donors. And of course, from Gore's perspective, his opponent was inexperienced. Bush had only been governor since 1995 and had held no other public office. But for Bush, his relative inexperience was an asset. He used it to paint Gore as a political insider who had failed to create meaningful change in Washington. Bush promised to restore honor and dignity to the White House in an obvious allusion to President Clinton's affair. Seeing that many conservatives were still outraged at the president's conduct, Bush's campaign did its best to funnel that outrage onto Gore as well. Despite all these crafty tactics, neither man was the clear frontrunner. Polls showed the candidates were neck and neck before Election Day. What November 7th would bring was anyone's guess. When the day did come, Americans across the country cast their ballots, unaware that every single one of their votes truly mattered. It would be one of the closest presidential elections in U.S. history, and in the end, it would all hinge on... Florida. As with most presidential election nights, Americans at home were glued to their TV sets, anxiously awaiting the outcome of the vote. Soon results came pouring in. TV networks announced that Bush had won the rural Midwest, the South, and the Rocky Mountains. Meanwhile, Gore had secured the East Coast, the Upper Midwest, and the West Coast. But as midnight approached, three states, New Mexico, Oregon, and Florida, were too close to call. The candidates needed 270 electoral votes each to clinch the victory. Both Gore's 255 and Bush's 246 fell short. Neither had a majority. The nation's attention quickly narrowed to Florida, 
Unlike New Mexico and Oregon, which had less than 10 electoral votes each, Florida had a whopping 25 electoral votes. The Sunshine State held the country's fate in its hands. Based on exit polling that evening, the Associated Press declared Al Gore the victor in Florida. Soon, NBC, CBS, and Fox News would declare the same. With this prediction, these same networks went on to conclude that Gore would win the Electoral College and thus the presidency. On TV screens across the country, Gore's face flashed next to the words, Projected Winner. Democratic campaign offices all over the nation started to celebrate. But that celebration had come too early, and the predictions too fast. In fact, it would be over a month before Americans would have a president-elect. As the vote continued being tallied in Florida late into the night of November 7th, Gore's theoretical advantage was quickly evaporating. And Bush's chief campaign strategist, Karl Rove, knew it. He called Fox News to ask them to reconsider their prediction of Gore. Let's not breeze by the fact either that Bush's cousin just so happened to work as the head of Fox News's election night coverage. Coincidentally or not, Fox News soon announced that the Florida race was too close to call, prompting the other networks to follow suit. By 2 a.m., not only had Bush bridged the vote gap, he seemed to have a sizable lead on his opponent. In an interview, a gleeful Bush said, the networks called this thing awfully early, but the people actually counting votes are coming up with a different perspective. So we're pretty darn upbeat about things. In the early hours of November 8th, some outlets were reporting that Bush's lead in Florida was in the tens of thousands, which was a huge deal. If true, this meant Bush had unquestionably won the presidency. After carefully studying the numbers, a defeated Al Gore privately called his opponent to concede. But once again, this call proved to be a little premature. Just moments before Gore was to deliver his concession speech in Nashville, his campaign called. The Florida vote was closer than reported. In fact, only 1,000 votes separated the winner from the loser. Gore canceled his speech and immediately called Bush to retract his concession. He was still in the race after all. Later that morning, the count was finally in. Bush had beat Gore by 1,784 votes. Florida's Secretary of State, Katherine Harris, who was in charge of certifying statewide votes, was happy to announce Bush had clinched Florida. Why Harris was so relieved with this result wasn't hard to see. She'd served as co-chair to Bush's Florida campaign. She had also been appointed by Florida's governor, Jeb Bush. George W. Bush's brother. Naturally, this made many Democrats question Harris's neutrality, and they wondered if they should seek a recount. Luckily, they didn't have to push too hard, since Florida law dictated that if a vote's margin was less than 0.5%, a machine recount of the vote was required. As the recount began, fresh news reports started popping up across the state citing a large number of voting irregularities in the ballots themselves. 
Soon, all of America would be talking about hanging chads. When a punch ballot had not been fully punctured with paper left hanging. Adding to the mystique were dimpled chads or pregnant chads. These were ballots that had been indented, but the card had not been punched through. All of these technicalities would normally have been disqualified. However, seeing that the race was so close, many questioned if it was fair to dismiss the votes. Palm Beach County, though, used butterfly ballots. The different candidates' names were listed on both sides of the paper with a selection column down the middle. Bush's name was pretty clear, but the confusing arrangement of the other choices made many voters accidentally swap Al Gore's name for reform candidate Pat Buchanan. Subsequently, an unlikely number of votes went to Buchanan. This was clearly incorrect, given Palm Beach's liberal and Jewish populations. It didn't quite make sense that a conservative evangelical preacher had received 3,407 votes. Many Gore supporters argued this was a direct failure of the confusing ballot design. But Bush's camp pushed back. They claimed, Palm Beach County is a Pat Buchanan stronghold. Not that Reform Party officials agreed. They had expected less than 500 votes from the county. Even Buchanan himself went on to say, when I took one look at that ballot on election night, it's very easy for me to see how someone could have voted for me in the belief they voted for Al Gore. With such an onslaught of voting discrepancies, each county would have to set new rules as to which votes counted and which votes didn't. Almost 200,000 ballots across Florida had been uncounted due to undervotes when a ballot does not record a vote for president or overvotes when a ballot is recorded to have more than one vote for president. With razor-thin margins, every vote mattered. Voting irregularities became a national controversy. Many Democrats feared that poor ballot design, intentionally or unintentionally, could have cost Gore the presidency. And that was just the start. The controversies would keep piling on as a historic brawl was unfolding in Florida, a battle over ballots unlike any other election in U.S. history. Coming up, Gore and Bush take to court in the Sunshine State. Hey, Parcasters. Looking for a more lighthearted listen? Then I've got the perfect podcast for you. The new Spotify original from Parcast called Incredible Feats. Hosted by comedian and podcaster Dan Cummins, Incredible Feats is a daily show spotlighting true accounts of mind-blowing physical strength, mental focus, and bizarre behavior. Join Dan every weekday as he goes behind the scenes and into the achievements of everyone from freedivers and body modifiers to ultramarathoners and moms. Incredible Feats is offbeat entertainment that's sometimes weird, sometimes wonderful, and always surprising. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. 
Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Now back to the story. In 2000, the fate of the presidency hinged on the reliability of Florida's votes. But with America's undivided attention on the state's election process, more and more inconsistencies became apparent. Newspapers began shining a spotlight on the Florida Secretary of State's office. As of 1998, it had regularly erased felons from Florida's voting rolls. Tens of thousands of citizens' names had been removed, and it looked pretty evident that Black voters were particularly targeted. Black Americans were removed at a rate five times that of their share of the population. The New York Times pointed out that the private company hired to construct the list by Secretary Katherine Harris had strong Republican ties. The Florida counties that vetted the purge list before removing names found an error rate of over 15%. Many Democrats were understandably outraged. All signs suggested that Secretary Harris had purposely disenfranchised Black voters, a population historically known for voting Democrat. In fact, later statistics would confirm that 93% of Black Floridians voted for Al Gore. If the voter roll purge had not unfairly targeted Black voters, critics claimed Gore would have won by a wide margin. To add to the emerging controversies, on November 10th, Florida's machine recount was finally completed. With it, Bush's lead had narrowed even further. He now only had 327 more votes than Gore. Seeing this tiny margin, both campaigns immediately dug their heels in. It looked like what lay ahead was a long, contentious legal battle. When the vote was this close, and with vote numbers fluctuating with each new count, the loser would inevitably contest the results. Teams of lawyers representing Bush and Gore descended onto the Sunshine State, ready to take this election to the courts. Gore's campaign thought it might pull ahead if it could prove the inconsistencies of the machine recount. It soon requested a manual recount in four Democrat-leaning Florida counties. The problem was, Florida's official certification of the vote was due to federal officials by November 14th, just four days away. With the county's combined votes exceeding 1.8 million, it would be an impossible task. Meanwhile, Bush's campaign took a pretty different tactic. It filed a federal court order to stop all recounting efforts. Logistically, the aftermath was shaping into a nightmare. While Gore had every right to contest the election results in specific counties, Bush's legal team insisted he was cherry-picking recounts in counties known as Democratic strongholds. Despite the criticism, the four counties where Al Gore had requested a hand recount began the arduous task. 
and the Gore movement was gaining back its steam. On November 13th, his campaign received word that a U.S. district judge dismissed Bush's plea to stop the recount. Bad news was on its heels, though. Florida Secretary of State Katherine Harris soon announced that she would not be extending the state's deadline for certification of the vote, despite the fact that the affected counties would be incapable of meeting the deadline. November 14th was only one day away, and none of the counties were close to finished. Disheartening as this was, Gore and his team were prepared to keep fighting. The vice president's campaign announced that it would go to state court and seek to overturn Harris's decision. They also weren't shy about publicly denouncing the secretary as a corrupt Bush supporter seeking to thwart Gore. Unfortunately for Gore's campaign, the very next day on November 14th, the Florida court backed Secretary Harris's right to enforce the recount deadline. However devastated, though, the Gore campaign still didn't concede. And neither would Palm Beach County, whose election committee voted to continue the hand recount of ballots past the deadline, directly defying Harris. Naturally, this didn't sit well with Secretary Harris, who immediately filed a suit in the Florida Supreme Court to stop all recounts. Much to her surprise, it was denied. She could keep putting up roadblocks, but the recount would continue. So Harris pivoted to trying to make the process as painful as possible. She planned to disregard all hand recounts when she announced the state's election results on November 18th. Her logic was that no one had proven that the machine recounts were inaccurate thus far, so there was no reason for a manual recount. Very shaky logic, but she was grasping for any advantage. Gore's lawyers jumped to call this unlawful and in turn filed another suit with Florida's Supreme Court to challenge it. His team demanded that the hand-counted votes be included in the final election results. Every day, every hour even, seemed to bring about a new battle in Florida. Unsurprisingly, the tension only mounted between the two presidential hopefuls themselves. Each framed their position as an honorable crusade. Gore claimed he only had Americans' best interest at heart, stating, there's an awful lot at stake here, and what is at stake is more important than who wins the presidency. What is at stake is the integrity of our democracy, making sure that the will of the American people is expressed and accurately received. Bush pushed back, staking his claim that he had a constitutional right to the presidency, arguing, we have a constitution and I live by the constitution. We've had two vote counts already. Hinting not so subtly that Gore was a sore loser, Bush added, I'm sure there's going to be some people disappointed that their man didn't get in, but there's also going to be a lot of people very happy. So, Gore gave him a little ultimatum. On November 15th, Gore's campaign released a statement that it would drop all lawsuits if the Republicans allowed the selected Florida counties to finish their recounts. Or, if Bush preferred, they could simply do a recount of all Florida votes, which would take days, if not weeks. Gore also requested that he and Bush meet one-on-one, -on -one, 
not to negotiate, but to improve the tone of our dialogue in America. Bush wasn't having any of this and would take to the press just hours later. The Texas governor chided Gore, saying he too would love to end the drawn-out process, but the vice president wasn't actually proposing any new solutions. Bush's campaign contended that Gore's recount was unjust because each county had their own local standards for vote counting, so the outcome would be neither fair nor accurate, but arbitrary and chaotic. The Texas governor went on to reject Gore's idea for a meeting, saying he would be happy to meet with the vice president after the election. In the end... Gore's intended peace offering only escalated the antagonism between the Democrats and Republicans. By the next day, there were 27 separate court cases underway regarding Florida's voting results. The presidential election was in a complete quagmire. Secretary Harris, meanwhile, continued to invalidate every part of the Gore effort she could with her roadblocks. On November 17th, she announced she wouldn't wait for the result of the hand recount to clear Florida's final results. She'd declare them the next day. And to the dismay of Democrats, yet another Florida district court affirmed her ability to do so. That same day, however, the Florida Supreme Court ruled this action was unlawful and that Harris couldn't announce a winner until further order of the court. Based on the arguments from Bush and Gore's lawyers, the court determined the hand recount results must be included in the vote totals. This deadline overrode the lower decision, and now the finish was set for November 26th. Which did not sit well with Republicans. The party quickly filed a petition to the U.S. Supreme Court to review the Florida Supreme Court's decision. Some Republican critics argued that the progressive Florida court was biased against conservatives. This legal ping-pong was all playing into a broader, more toxic climate. Notably, the Republicans were starting to roll out intimidation tactics, as Al Gore put it. On November 22nd, protesters surged into the Miami-Dade election office to interrupt the county's recount. The event became known as the Brooks Brothers Riot due to the demonstrators' corporate apparel. When Republicans were pressed for comment, the party claimed that the protest was a demonstration of the American public's outrage over the Florida recount. Not quite true when it was soon revealed that the protesters were not concerned citizens, but in fact Republican employees. Many had even been flown in from Washington, D.C., and were Republican congressional staffers paid for by the GOP coffers. Amusingly, the Wall Street Journal described the protesters as 50-year-old white lawyers with cell phones and Hermes ties. Al Gore's running mate, Joe Lieberman, was disgusted by the Republicans' tactics, saying, This is a time to honor the rule of law, not surrender to the rule of the mob. In the end, regardless of whether it was a demonstration or organized intimidation, the Republicans won. Miami-Dade's election committee voted to suspend their county's recount. While Bush's campaign was blatantly aided by the dirty mudslinging of Republican supporters, it nonetheless accepted hand recounts from four Republican counties. 
The recount of the ballots that had been rejected by machines from those counties gave Bush a net gain of 185 votes. The Gore campaign was not immune from political machination either. It started looking for little technicalities it could walk back. While Gore claimed he wanted every vote counted, Gore's lawyers increasingly pressed not to count overseas ballots that had not been postmarked into the state's election results. No coincidence, considering these were mostly military ballots voting for Bush. Would the devious tactics work? Only November 26th would tell. That evening, Secretary Harris was forced by the Florida Supreme Court to adhere to the 5 p.m. deadline for counties to turn in completed vote totals. Which she would then wield to her advantage. When Palm Beach requested to extend the 5 p.m. deadline, she flatly denied it. Subsequently, the county only missed the deadline by 90 minutes, which meant over 1,000 votes weren't included in the new results. Later that evening, Harris certified George W. Bush as the winner in Florida. The margin of victory was only 537 votes. In other words, if Palm Beach was allowed to finish, it could have changed the result entirely. In reality, Bush had only won that battle. Triumph was still at the mercy of the many court cases continuing statewide. It had been 18 hard-fought days since the election, but the end wasn't even in sight yet. Gore would officially contest the election, and soon the highest court in the land would have to mediate. And their decision would, once and for all, choose the next president of the United States. Coming up, we'll head to D.C. and the Supreme Court. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now, back to the story. Nearly three weeks after Election Day of 2000, Americans still did not know who their next president would be. The longest wait in modern U.S. history. Florida's secretary, Katherine Harris, had officially certified George W. Bush as the victor in Florida. But many court cases contesting the decision still raged on throughout the state. Democrats certainly didn't trust her certification. In the media, however, Bush acted like Harris's decision was the final word on the matter. Giving a speech that night, he said, the election was close, but tonight, after a count, a recount, 
and yet another manual recount, Secretary Cheney and I are honored and humbled to have won the state of Florida. Now that the votes are counted, it's time for the votes to count. Many Americans found Bush's speech hypocritical. After all, his team had actively pushed against votes being recounted. Al Gore himself agreed with Bush that the country needed to come together. However, he specified what they needed to come together over was the importance of every vote cast being counted and not arbitrarily set aside due to technicalities. As if to prove the matter wasn't as settled as Bush suggested, on November 27th, Al Gore publicly contested the election, challenging the vote counts of three Florida counties. This meant he was also contesting the certification handed down by Secretary Harris. Giving a speech on national primetime television, Gore insisted, a vote is not just a piece of paper. A vote is a human voice, a statement of human principle, and we must not let these voices be silenced. Bush disagreed with Gore's grandiose public speech, of course, stating that Gore's action is not the best route for America. When Bush's running mate Dick Cheney was asked whether he thought Al Gore was a sore loser on Meet the Press, he didn't hold back. He said, in the long term, I think history would regard Gore in a better light if he were to bring this to a close in the very near future. Cheney was right. Things would have to come to a close. As much as Gore fought, the constant court cases couldn't continue forever. United States federal law requires state electors to be chosen by December 12th, meaning Gore was fighting the clock just as much as he was the Republicans. So he had to be shrewd. Gore chose to contest the election using Florida's own election code, not the federal guidelines. He was playing the long game. If the case moved from a local district court up to Florida's Supreme Court, Gore might have an advantage since it was Democrat-leaning. Bush's lawyers, on the other hand, mainly appealed to the federal courts as they had a more conservative leaning. When the district court trial began on November 28th, Gore and his team once again tried to appeal to Bush with a new ultimatum. This proposal was for a full recount of all of Florida's uncounted ballots in seven days. Predictably, Bush's lawyers rejected Gore's proposal. Instead, they would continue battling in the courts against any type of recount, even if it was just a recount in the three counties Gore had contested. An aggravated Gore was losing his patience. He went on NBC's Today Show and argued that the reason Bush and his team would not accept a full recount was because it would prove he was the real winner. Despite Gore's bravado and media appearances, legally, he couldn't change his fate. The Tallahassee court would choose what came next, and unfortunately, that was a devastating blow. On December 4th, the court ultimately rejected Gore's request to overturn Bush's certified state victory. This should have been the end of the road for Gore and his team. However, Gore had come this far and wasn't going to stop until every avenue had been exhausted. He once again appealed the decision, which would kick his case up to the Florida Supreme Court. 
Gore may not have been tired, but America was. Polls that month showed the country had grown weary of the drama in Florida. Over 60% of those polled said the election had dragged on too long. The majority said Gore should concede. But Gore wasn't swayed by pollsters. This was now most simply a legal matter. And that legal matter still had to be settled. On December 7th, the Florida Supreme Court began hearing arguments over the vice president's appeal of the lower court's ruling. What followed, few people saw coming. A massive change of the tides for Gore that could finally sway Florida's victory towards him. On December 8th, the court reversed the lower court's ruling and ordered a manual recount of all undervotes in the state. Remember, undervotes meant any ballot when a machine did not record a vote for president. Almost immediately, counties across Florida began the process of hand counting all undervotes. Now it was Bush's turn to appeal, or his lawyers, rather. They hoped the federal Supreme Court, with its conservative majority, would agree to hear their case. Little did they know, their appeal would be the last court case on the matter. The United States Supreme Court would step in to finally end the Florida debacle conclusively. On December 11th, just one day before electors were due, the Supreme Court began hearing arguments for Gore v. Bush. Understandably, their rapid decision came the very next day. The court voted 7-2 to two to stop the recount as ordered by the Florida Supreme Court. Then, it went on to vote 5-4 to four that no new recounts should be ordered in Florida. The battle was finished. With no more recounts allowed, Gore could not change Florida's election results. The Supreme Court had essentially awarded the presidency to George W. Bush. In light of this, many Americans, particularly Democrats, were outraged. The Supreme Court was supposed to be above politics, but the decision was plainly along ideological lines. To some, it appeared that the judges were just as political as the candidates themselves. Finally, on December 13th, the end of the road came to television screens across the country as Al Gore delivered his concession speech. Perhaps still bitter, Gore announced, while I strongly disagree with the court's decision, I accept it. For the sake of our unity and the strength of our democracy, I offer my concession. Trying to quell Democrats' anger and foster peace, he added that partisan rancor must be put aside for the sake of the country. And George W. Bush was relieved more than anything that the long conflict was over at last. His acceptance speech in Austin, Texas, preached bipartisanship, saying, our nation must rise above a house divided. Americans share hopes and goals and values far more important than any political disagreements. Our votes may differ, but not our hopes. I was not elected to serve one party, but to serve one nation. 36 days later, George W. Bush was the official 43rd president-elect of the United States.
Even with Bush legally as president-elect, a lingering suspicion for many Americans remained over what had happened in Florida. In a nationwide poll that asked who would have won if every vote had been counted, 49% replied that Gore would have won, and 41% said Bush. Despite the candidates' appeal to their supporters to accept the election results, America remained deeply divided. Having lost the popular vote, Bush would enter office with a weak presidential mandate. Maybe because of this, the Florida speculation took quite some time to die out. In January 2001, when Bush was just moving into the White House, researchers had already begun to look into the Florida election, conducting their own recount. One study sponsored by the Miami Herald and USA Today found that had the Florida Supreme Court's order to count undervotes continued, Bush still would have won the election. However, if a fresh recount of all uncounted undervote ballots in Florida had been conducted, Gore would have been victorious. And yet another later study completed by the National Opinion Research Center found that had a recount occurred with all uncounted votes, undervotes, and overvotes, Gore would have won. While the media had fixated on hanging chads, this study revealed Gore had, in fact, lost many votes due to overvotes. On write-in ballots, voters had both checked off Gore's name and written Gore's name. The machines rejected these ballots despite the voters' choice being unambiguous. If these votes had counted, Gore would have gained 46,000 votes, while Bush would have gained only 17,000. Democrats saw these studies as proof positive their man had been cheated. Doug Hathaway, a former Gore campaign spokesman, said, What this shows is that if you count the voters' intent, Gore wins. If you look for excuses not to count votes, Bush does better. Meanwhile, Republicans clung tight to their victory. Hypotheticals didn't matter. Bush still won. White House spokesman Ari Fleischer said, The president believes, just as the American people do, that the election was settled months ago. One of Bush's lawyers went so far as to call the hypothetical count of overvotes in the study Never Neverland. One thing was certain. The turmoil following the 2000 election changed U.S. elections forever. As a direct outcome of Florida's unreadable ballots, voting reform was top of mind. For future elections, the user-friendliness of ballots would be critical. In 2002, Congress would pass the Help America Vote Act, which funded new election technology, such as electronic voting. Ironically, it was Bush who signed the bipartisan bill which attempted to reduce uncounted votes into law. More than anything, though, the uncertainty of the 2000 election led to a greater public distrust of election results and increasingly fractured politics. Since 2000, the number of lawsuits over election issues has more than doubled. And of course, bitter partisanship lives on. Many Democrats today still think about an America where Al Gore became the 43rd president.
Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with number five on our countdown, the Army McCarthy hearings, when Senator Joseph McCarthy accused the Army of harboring communists during America's Red Scare. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Political Scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Political Scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Stephen Davies, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Matt Hartman, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Listeners, you don't want to miss Incredible Feats, the all-new Spotify original from Parcast. Host Dan Cummins free-falls straight into the weirdest, wildest achievements of all time. New episodes air every weekday. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.